Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. you guys have had a good week. I've had a good week. And one of the things that's been good about this week is uh, thinking again about the Trinity. And you know, last week we began uh, with a a brief overview of the the Bible's doctrine of the Trinity. And we saw something of how um, there's the Trinity is not just an abstract doctrine. The Trinity is one of those doctrines from which believers can find motivation. In your daily life, you can, you can really be motivated by considering something of the beauty of the doctrine of the Trinity. So, I would like to continue today with the doctrine of the Trinity. But if you have a look at this picture, you'll see another one of my efforts at artificial intelligence, uh, developing this, this image that's, uh, you know, it's meant to speak. And what this image is saying, you know, what I tried to develop, what I tried to create here, using this fancy software that we have these days, um, is if you look at this image, you'll see this whole array of things. And the idea I was trying to capture is the, the vast array of diversity in nature and the vast array of diversity in nations and the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think this AI did a pretty good job of picturing this vast spectrum of things. And I'm going to post this, obviously, on our WhatsApp group. So you'll be able to look at all of these little things. You can open this up and you can say, Hey, look, in the bottom corner over here. There's a loaf of bread. And... As Hope was noticing while we were looking, there's a couple of upside-down forests on the bottom of this thing. You'll notice on the left side, there's all kinds of weather phenomena where you've got the earth, but it's been damaged and been burned by fire or, you know, it's, it's dead from lack of water. And on the other side, everything's green. There's weather, beautiful weather with clouds and rain. You've got all, a whole lot of different planets and Uh, heavenly bodies represented there you've got all kinds of birds and even a a big sort of a clock thing i'm not sure what it is there but it probably is speaking about time you've got a couple of different buildings representing architecture we just got this vast array of little bits and pieces and of course as ai does it there's a whole lot of little things in here that you don't know what they are you know one thing looks like at the top corner there looks like a seal maybe an elephant you know you're not quite sure but it's a thing my point is it's diverse. It's gloriously diverse. And, and the reason why we're looking at this picture is because today, as we think about God the Father's function inside of the Trinity, we're thinking about God the Father's plan, how God the Father planned. It's His primary role is to plan. 
But just before we do that, let's just have a quick overview of what we looked at last week. You remember when we begin to speak about the Trinity, uh, the image is on the next slide. If you begin to speak about the Trinity, we have three summary statements. And those three summary statements, you remember, is that there are three persons, all pictured in this diagram, this well-worn diagram that theologians use all the time. Um, is that there are three persons, God is three persons, so we have diversity, we have three persons who are not the same person. You've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then the second summary statement in the Bible is that each of those three persons is fully God. So you'll notice in the diagram you've got the Father and then there's a line to God in the center and in the middle it says is. So you've got the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Those nice, that nice neat symmetry that we have there. And then the final statement, so God is three persons, each of those three persons is fully God. And then the final statement of the Trinity is that there is one God. So we begin with three persons, we've got diversity, three different, three distinct persons. And then we have the final statement showing that there's one God. So there's three distinct persons in a perfect unity. And we were pointing out last week that if there's a perfect unity between these three distinct persons of God, and God is our Father, Jesus Christ is our Savior, God the Holy Spirit is the one who motivates us as believers in our daily lives. There should be that same kind of diversity and unity in the body of Christ. That impacts our relationships and the way we deal with each other, the way we love each other and care for each other. So that's just a summary of what we looked at last week. And then one step further is we will notice that there are three functions represented in the Trinity. So we remember at a basic level, the Father plans, and that's why we're looking at that amazing picture. The Father is thinking up all of those amazing things in His mind, designing them and causing them to function in such a way that they work the first time and they just keep working. God doesn't have to keep changing the plans for the eyeball, for example. So the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies. So all we're looking at today is the fact that the Father plans. And today I have so much to share with you and I'm going to do my best to just finish this thing within a reasonable amount of time. But as you will see, when we speak about the Father planning, you'll realize that the Bible has an overwhelming volume of information about the Father's planning. And I'm trusting that as we look at the Father's planning today, you're going to look at just this one function inside of the Trinity and you can say that's overwhelming it's unbelievably complex it's unbelievably wonderful and it's going to move you to be the kind of person who looks at the beauty of God the Father's planning and you're going to say God please make me a planning person make me a person who thinks about my future and plans well for my future instead of just rumbling on from day to day and just hoping for the best God help me to be like God the Father who plans and, and accomplishes this glorious uh, story of redemption through His created order. So, with that introduction, maybe we can ask God to help us to just speak about the Father's planning and then we get to start. Lord, thank You for this wonderful morning. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the beauty that we see in the Trinity Thank you, Lord, for the fact that each member of the Trinity is distinct. 
Yet, Lord, at the same time, each uh, member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is God. So there's unity there. And what a wonderful thing, Lord, to see the Trinity, God, living forever and ever and ever and never having an argument. Never being resentful. Never getting short-tempered with each other member of the Trinity. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the Trinity as beautiful and the functions of the members of the Trinity as beautiful. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who want to see something of that beautiful unity in diversity in our own lives as we, as we live among other people in this world. As we look at the Father today, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to grasp something of the magnitude of what we are looking at today. We pray that you would give us joy, huge joy, as we just look at this one, this one thing, this one aspect of the function of the Trinity, the planning of the Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see it as beautiful. Move us, Lord, we pray. Pray that you would help us to long to be people like this. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to move your church as a result of the fact that we are a planning church, a plan that takes the time and the resources you've given us and to use them well with, with a clear intention and, and purpose and strategy. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to worship in this regard today. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. Thank you, man. So, so let's begin and think about God's planning. When we're speaking about planning, the first thing I would like to just touch on is, is the providence of God. That God is the God of providence. We've heard this word used so many times, but providence, literally, obviously at the heart of the word providence, is that God provides. He's the one who takes care of every eventuality. He makes sure that there are resources for every one of the contingencies that take place in His created order. So God is the God of providence. And inside of Christian theology, inside of systematic theology, when we look at providence, we are looking at three different aspects. Just as a quick overview of providence. There are three different aspects of providence. And the first one is the fact that when God creates, remember in the beginning we first quoted that verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, He used Christ as the agent, the Son as the agent of creation. And then the Spirit of God was accompanying or a partner to Christ in His creative work. But when we think of providence, we think of God preserving every part of His created order. So preservation is the first part of providence. The second part of providence is the fact that God concurs with or He cooperates with every single part of His created order. And the third part of providence is that God governs His created order. So those three aspects, just as we begin with preservation here, so you have a roadmap of where we're going. And obviously, if you want to look at preservation, concurrence, and government, you're gonna, you could spend the rest of your life studying these things and never come to an end, because it has to do with every single facet of, created, of God's created order. And that's absolutely wonderful. That's why that picture is so thrilling. It just gives us some idea of the diversity in God's created order. And God is actively engaged with every one of those little things that He created all the time. There's no rogue molecule, somebody once said. Eh? No rogue molecule in God's created order. So let's have a look at preservation. That God, continue, God is continually involved 
in his entire created order with all created things in a such a way that he keeps them existing and maintains the properties with which he created them. So God causes bread to continue to be bread. God continues to cause a grain of wheat to continue to be a grain of wheat. He causes water to continue to be water. And I think when we think about that, you know, we just open the tap and you fill a glass and you drink it and you just believe that that's water. It's like, this, is, this stuff I can drink. And you just drink it and every single day it does exactly the same kind of thing in your body. Imagine you threw back a glass of water, but in that moment, while you're busy drinking, it turns into hydrochloric acid. I mean, your life would change in an instant if you couldn't trust the fact that God caused water to exist and water will always be water. And I find that absolutely fascinating as God creates. He designs and He maintains the lives of all things. So all things, all elements, things like water, things like sand, you know, things like all the different elements on the periodic table, you know, lead and copper and things like salt, you know, just the, anything you can imagine, God causes it to continue to function in the way that God created it to function. And God is actively doing that all of the time. Imagine God constantly causing your fingernails to remain fingernails all the time. It doesn't turn into an eye, for example. Imagine how weird it would be, you know, if, if those molecules just could reshuffle and form something else. So, God... God continually works with every single aspect of His creation in such a way that He preserves it to be what it is. If I think of a, a couple of verses there, you know, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, we're speaking about the sun as He functions in relation to creation. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. You've got that sustaining power, so we remember... The Son is the one who accomplishes. He's the one who is sustaining. But God is the one who has planned what the Son is going to sustain. So the Father plans water. The Son creates the water. And the Father's plan is that that water is going to continue to be sustained by His planning and executing power. A very similar text is in Colossians 1.17. He, that is the Son, is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And me and Bahati have had so many good conversations about this. You know, talking about molecules and how they stick together. And what a mystery it is in the scientific world to try and find out what glues molecules together. Where does that force come from that sticks everything together? And we say, well, the Father's doing that. He's actively engaged with His creation on a daily basis to cause molecules to stick together in the correct groupings. To, to cause structures to exist and to maintain those structures in those preset formats. I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm obviously grateful when I put my head down on my pillow at night that my pillow doesn't suddenly turn into live coals. You know, something like that lava maybe. And you know, you just wake up and what's going on here? We can, we can just trust all the elements that God has created and preserves. So what does He create? What does He preserve? He designs and gives and maintains life to all living things. He designs and preserves properties of natural elements like water and grass and trees and all of those things that we take for granted around us and he and the interactions between them so imagine making a cup of coffee for example and 
You said to yourself, all right, I'm going to make some coffee. And you threw a teaspoon of coffee granules in the cup and you threw a teaspoon of sugar in. And then you put a little bit of milk in and then you poured some water in and you stirred it. And then all you've got is a mug of water with some coffee granules floating around in it. You know, and some sugar grains just sort of stirring around like that. And the milk in little blobs, you know, like oil in water. I mean, coffee would not be pleasant at all. You know, if those elements didn't actually mix and change each other and and form a different type of substance. I mean, you can think of anything that you make, any food that you cook in the kitchen. Petrol, for example, in a fuel tank. You know, God didn't originally create petrol, but the way elements interact with each other, they cause a different substance. And God even causes those interactions to be stable. And I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely fascinating that God is in charge of all of that stuff all of the time. It just goes on and on. It's just, this can open your mind if you think about what God is doing. Think about what happens when you throw a piece of bacon in, in a hot pan. You know, there's interactions there. The heat causes the bacon to change. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't enjoy eating a, a piece of raw bacon. But once it's cooked, it's really nice. You know, so there's an interaction and every single time you put bacon in a hot pan, it does the same thing. Can't we be grateful for that? You put cheese on a piece of bread and you apply it to the, you put it in the microwave and you apply some heat. The cheese melts. Imagine it didn't. You know, imagine it just burst into flame if its burning point was lower than its melting point. I mean, it would be so disappointing. But God is in charge of all of those little interactions. And it makes me grateful every time I push the accelerator on my car and it goes instead of just stop. And then now what? Now what do I have to repair? Okay, so God's design and preservation of all things obviously is the key of all technology that we have here. It is consistent. It goes on the same every time. It helps us to advance in technology. And for believers, I mean, every spoon of breakfast that you eat is is an opportunity to worship God for the fact that this is actually going to stay the same from the time I dip my spoon into the bowl and put it in my mouth. It's the same thing. It's not going to change. When the spoon touches the milk, it's going to change into something else. The ground is not just going to give way and turn into water. We can praise God for that, the stability in the created order and we can say isn't it amazing that God the Father thought about every one of these interactions every one of these molecules every one of these substances and he put them together in such a way that we have a stable world for thousands and thousands of years so that's the first thing God preserves the second is concurrence and when we're talking about providence it is in this whole arena of concurrence that theology gets very very complicated and if, you get, if this gets complicated for you while we're talking about it, um, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to explain everything here because I've got too much to say today. But you're welcome to catch me afterwards and we'll, talk about, we'll have a long discussion about concurrence. So what concurrence means is that, for example, God creates, He produces what we know as a dog. There's a dog. But now what happens... When I'm walking down the road, I'm just having a happy walk and somebody's dog jumps over the fence and bites me. Who bit me? Obviously the dog bit me. But is God involved in that situation? If God planned everything, does it mean that God bit me? No, God plans 
that the dog, he, he writes every day that that dog is going to have in his whole life. He's aware of every molecule, he's planned every molecule, every hair in that dog. He's organized every single detail about that dog, when it'll be born, its temperament, its owners, like every aspect. And obviously, inside of God's plan is the moment where that dog, that, whose heart that God is keeping beating, the dog's heart is beating at the plan of God, dog jumps over the fence and it bites me. God did not bite me. But what we can say is that the act of every creature, every, every aspect of the created order, is fully the act of the creature and fully the act of God. That's why it's so hard to understand, because if somebody stabs me with a knife and I die, did God stab me with a knife? No, God didn't stab me with a knife. Did God plan that that would happen? Yes. And that's where it's confusing. The Bible teaches both of these things. So if somebody's going to stab me with a knife, I'm going to say, yes, here's a criminal who's going to stab me with a knife. And God is going to hold this criminal responsible. But this is all inside of God's plan. It's not out of control. And for a believer, we can look at the most terrible things unfolding. And we can say, thank God that this is inside of God's vast and glorious plan. God interacts even with the molecules in the blade of that knife. To preserve the properties of the steel so that when it touches my flesh and he preserves the qualities of my flesh so that the knife penetrates and it goes through different important structures. God is intimately involved inside of every one of those movements of molecules inside of my body as that knife penetrates. He's in charge of every one of the bacteria on, on that knife blade and how they interact with my body. So that I either get a terrible infection or die or maybe recover. Isn't it comforting to know that there's not one single rogue molecule in this universe? There's not one single thing that can move apart from the plan of God the Father. And the second thing we think is if God the Father planned in this way, what a glorious mind God the Father has. I mean, I, I have a hard enough time... In my little intelligence trying to comprehend my own life trying to comprehend the things that I'm studying comprehending the relationships around me you know and all the different aspects of my own little life but God comprehends every single aspect of the created order from beginning to end right down to the furthest reaches of space there's not a molecule that is not under the direct control of God I find this wonderful I find it absolutely thrilling so God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And this includes inanimate things. The Bible shows us all the way through these different things. And I've, there's so much to say today. I've put a couple of texts on the screen here. You know, I'll put this presentation on the group so you can read them if you want to. Or come to Systematic Theology next year and we'll go through these a little more slowly. But inanimate things like snow, rain, ice and lightning, they all do exactly what God commands them to do. In Job, for example, Job 37, it's God who commands the lightning to strike its mark. When lightning strikes, it's not just some random thing that happens. Every time a lightning bolt strikes, it touches exactly the thing God intends it to touch. That, makes, that fills me with wonder because I know that if that lightning bolt strikes me, it's God's intention. It's not just some accident. It's not some random accident like I had a full life to live, but oh, this, 
this crazy random thing happened and cut my life short. And God is not, oh no, what am I going to do now? You know, yuck, I didn't mean for that guy to die on that day. I had other things I wanted him to do. No. Isn't it wonderful to know that if that lightning bolt strikes you, it is a wonderful moment that is planned by God in order to draw His loved ones into His presence forever. Remember what the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It's planned. There's animals in Psalm 104, for example. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Just imagine all of these animals sitting, waiting for God, the Father, to say, here we go, you know, here's some grass for you, cow. You know, here's some nuts for you, squirrel. You know, mouse, you know, here's some trash on the kitchen floor for you to eat. The ants, you know, God feeding the ants that come there. Oh, here's a little blob of honey on the counter. And the little ants like around this blob of honey until it's gone. Some ants in our house dragging away a fish moss yesterday. I mean, isn't it amazing that God provided food for those particular ants on that particular day in that fish moss? God planned it. It overwhelms me when I think about the vastness of God's planning. Then, of course, there are random and chance events that take place in life. We think, phew, that was close. You drive in your car and somebody comes past like they overtake and they just miss you. You think, phew, that was close. But we think of Psalm 1633, which is a remarkable text. It says in Psalm 1633, the lot is cast into the lap, or like the dice is thrown. But it's every decision is from the Lord. You cannot even throw a dice without God having planned which number is going to be on top. Even children playing a game and throwing the dice across the floor. So you've got to go and find it under the couch. God knows because he's planned which number is going to be on top where that dice lies in the darkness under the couch. And you just think, you know, is there anything that God doesn't concern himself with? No. He concerns himself with every single little thing. In fact, I love the the text in 1 Kings. Remember where um, you've got this war going on. Jehoshaphat and Ahab go out into the war. And... Jehoshaphat, the prophet of the Lord, has warned um, that Ahab's going to die in this battle. And Ahab decides he's not going to wear his kingly clothes. He's just going to get dressed up as an ordinary guy. So they don't know he's the king. (laughs) He's going to outsmart God in this. And the text says in 1 Kings 22-34 that someone, someone drew a bow at random. This is a battle. Some guy just pulls his bow whoop, and lets an arrow fly. Someone doesn't even have a name. And that arrow hits the king between the sections of his armor. And he dies as a result of that. God told him he's going to die. Someone just shot an arrow into the air and the guy died as a result of that. So it's, to us, it's a chance event. That guy wasn't planning. The Bible says he just, he just shot the arrow at random. And he hits the king. Just like that. God guides that arrow straight to that king. Straight to the crack in his armor. I mean, how, what is, what's the possibility of doing that? God plans even random events. We think of the nations. God has full control over the nations. I think of this text in Daniel chapter 4. We know this text well. Verse 34 and 35. This is Nebuchadnezzar. As you remember, he's crawling around for seven years like an animal. Because God warned him he's getting too proud. 
At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. He's crawling around like an animal and he looks up. And the one thing he acknowledges is that God is sovereign. It's a sovereign God. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Why? His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35 says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples on earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? God raises, the Bible says a lot about the fact that God raises up nations and God destroys nations. He moves, he swishes people from one place to the next. He does as he pleases with the people on the face of the earth. Every single movement, every single migration. And we know about that in our church. Eh? Every single one of those, every movement is under the hand of God. All aspects of our lives, the Bible teaches in so many texts. That food is under the control of God. We've got birth and death and physical features. You know, what you look like when you look in the mirror is under the control of God. Your genetic makeup, all of our actions and individual steps, all of our successes and failures, our children, our talents, our abilities, our skills, our decisions, everything. Just doesn't matter what you put in the list, the Father planned it. God caused this to come about through putting a plan into action, accomplishing it through the Son and applying it through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Not one thing. You know, I, I joke about this, but when I drive my car and I've got the window open, I, say to, I always say to people, if I can feel my hair moving, then I know my hair is too long. God is even in charge of that. You know, if it's like I get to the point where, okay, it's time to cut my hair. God has even planned that. When Alan's going to cut his hair. It's so bizarre. You know, it's so comforting. In fact, all events are to be considered fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature. But we have a caution here that just because we can explain the way things happen scientifically, for example, precipitation, you know, when we have rainfall, just because we can explain it scientifically does not mean that it's not caused by God. God uses these principles that He set in motion in order to cause these things to happen. But now, maybe just one question before we move on to government, and that is, does God use evil? You know, we're talking about the dog biting somebody. Did God bite me if the dog bites me, if this is fully an act of the dog and fully an act of God? No, God didn't bite me. But God does use evil in order to fulfill His purposes. So we can explain all of these things and we can say Scripture shows that God causes evil events to come about, but God does not directly commit evil actions. God would not commit an evil action even if God uses evil for His purpose. And I think that is, you know, if you can understand that, it's gonna, you've got a big mind. You know, that's one of the things I find hard to understand. How God can use evil for His purpose, yet be innocent of that evil. But because Scripture says that, I will never look at God and say, No, God, I don't think you got this right. I'll say, Yes, God, I believe you got this right. I just don't understand how it works. That's a God-honoring thought in relation to that. 
I think the classic text of that, remember, we all know this, probably memorized it, is Genesis 50 verse 20. You remember Jacob with his brothers, they sold him, uh, Joseph, when they sold him into Egypt. And he says right at the end of that whole saga, he says, you intended to harm me, to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it. What? God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. He intended the harm that those brothers were inflicting on their own brother. God intended that for something. It was God's plan that he be um, caused harm in the way that his brothers were harming him. And I think that's astounding that God engages with evil in that way. He plans that his brothers are going to inflict harm on him. But God is bringing about something glorious, the saving of the entire nation of Israel through that harm that is inflicted to Joseph. Remarkable. Next time, maybe even the children here, next time somebody calls you names and you think to yourself, this, this is horrible, I don't like this, this kid's calling me names. But you say, how does this fit into the whole scheme? Is God working this for my good and His glory? Imagine that, eh? I could grow in character, I could say, hey, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter if this person calls me names, because I can become strong when somebody insults me like this. I can, God has planned this for a reason. So, Scripture does not allow us, even though God uses evil for His purpose, Scripture does not allow us to say that God does evil actions. God does not perform evil actions. But God uses evil for His glory and for your good. And God is glorified ultimately in the punishment of evil. God uses evil for His purposes and then He punishes evil. And then God is glorified through Him putting evil down. Scripture does not allow us to blame God for evil. God holds moral agents accountable for their evil. And we have to acknowledge that we do not fully understand how God can re relate to evil in this way and yet remain righteous but God does relate to evil in this way and God does remain righteous and we can't work out that inter interrelation maybe in glory we'll look at God and we'll say God there's this one thing I cannot understand please help me understand it who knows maybe he'll sit and explain it to me for a thousand years and I'll still say Yo, I, I still don't get it but I believe it's true and I believe it glorifies God um, maybe if you're trying to think through this, you could ask yourself, well, what is the alternative? You know, if this isn't true, if God is not in charge of evil, every single act of evil, who is in charge of evil? And if there is a rogue force outside of there, you know, outside of God's control, that would be terrifying, wouldn't it? So it's wonderful to believe what the text of Scripture is teaching about God's control over all of these details. He's planning and putting these things into action. So then government, and government is short. Government means that not only does God preserve every aspect of His created order, but He concurs with it so that every action of a creature is fully the action of the creature and fully the action of God. But government says that God does those two things with a purpose. That every single aspect of God's created order, every action, has a purpose. That God is bringing every single thing to an end. You remember I was talking about all this glitter that we see lying around the church today from the Christmas decorations. There's not a single piece of glitter that doesn't have a purpose. Do I know what this piece of glitter's purpose is? No, I don't. Does God know what the purpose of this one piece of glitter is? Yes. 
God knows why He put it here. Maybe for an illustration today. It's absolutely amazing that God has a, a detailed purpose for every one of these things. So He governs all things to fulfill His purpose. That's what we read about just now in Daniel 4.35. The nations. God using the nations for His purposes. God has revealed some of, the, some of the purposes that He intends and some of the things He hasn't revealed. He hasn't told us some things and we won't know if He doesn't tell us. But some of the things He has com- communicated to His people, like Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. You know, there's some of the things are secret and some of the things are revealed. And the Bible teaches that the things that God has actually revealed are the things we must take and use in order to help us to live profitable, God-honoring lives. God's purpose takes short-term discomfort and turns it into eternal glory. It's a long, glorious plan. In fact, God planned all of this even before the creation of the world. It was all in the mind of God, the planning mind of the Father, before He even began to put this process into action. Imagine having all of this in your mind. Imagine having thousands of years of world's history And there's this one flea on a dog that causes a dog to scratch outside of the plan. God knew every single moment, every scratch, the velocity, you know, where that claw was going to scratch on the dog and whether it was going to hit the flea or miss it. Is the dog going to scratch 10 times or 11 times? God knows all of those details and He planned it. Imagine the mind of God to be able to do this. I want to swap over to another section now. So what we've looked at, just as a recap, we've looked at the fact that God is the planning God, the Father is the, is the planning person of the Trinity. And inside of that planning, when we look at His created order, you remember last time we saw that this relates to creation and redemption. So inside of creation, how does God relate to creation? Well, He acts inside of providence, and providence includes preservation, concurrence, and government. Now, there's another aspect that we need to look at. And we need to look at how God worked through providence in order to produce His plan of redemption. And I find this absolutely fascinating as I was looking through these people this week. You know, it just, it really gives me hope, man. It gives me such hope when I see God, how God generates the bloodline of Christ. He doesn't just have a purpose in creation. But he's weaving the bloodline of Christ through this messed up world, this fallen world. He still preserves this little red thread, the bloodline of Jesus Christ, throughout all generations until we see the Lord Jesus Christ born, that we're going to speak about next week. So, how does God plan the bloodline of the Lord Jesus? I just want to pick out a few people. These are, they're chronological, but it's not every person in the gene- genealogy, obviously. So you've got Adam, okay? What is remarkable, what's remarkable about Adam is that Adam is the head of the fallen race, isn't he? Number one, number one man in the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ fails the entire human race. He plunges us into sin with his sin, as Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21 teaches, that Adam is the one responsible for all of the ruin and misery inside of the human race. And you're like, Wow. You know, obviously God could have chosen this glorious man, like Enoch, for example, who walked with God and was no more. He could have chosen this model citizen. But no, He chooses the one man who is the epitome of failure in the entire human race. He's the number one failure. 
perfect in the Garden of Eden. One instruction, he had one job, and he fails. And he's number one in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. There's hope for me. There's hope for you if God chooses Adam. And then, of course, we have Seth. And Seth is the son who's born after Cain kills Abel. So you've got Seth living, I mean, the, the two guys, apart from Adam and Eve, and he's living with a murderer. I mean, his life is in danger every day as he's living with his rogue brother Cain, who killed his other brother Abel. And Seth has to make it through his life and produce other children before something terrible happens to him, like happened to his last brother. So there he goes, you know, first guy after, Cain, after um, Abel is killed. And then a few generations later, we have Lamech, you remember, who is a murderer. He kills somebody, some guy insults him or injures him and he kills the guy. You know, you hurt me, I'll kill you. And he's in the bloodline of Christ. And then later on, you've got Noah, his son. And remember, there's this massive deluge in the world, this whole universal flood, this global flood. And there's eight people floating around in an ark for almost a year. Uh, on, you know, I mean, the, the danger of that. And they, their ark lands on the Mount Ararat and they come out and they've got to restart the entire human race. Through just those eight people. And there you see Noah in the closing scenes of his life, lying drunk and naked in his tent. He's the one who's carrying on the bloodline of Jesus Christ. It gives me hope. It gives me hope. If this is the nature of God's plan, and I see the ordinariness and the degree of the failures in my life, I say, thank you God, that you're the God who planned your bloodline in this way. Think of um, Abraham. You remember after Genesis 11, you see what we call the table of nations. You know, this whole table of where everybody moved after the flood and, you know, where everybody was, you know, their sort of locations. And then after Genesis 11, the very next chapter, in chapter 12, we see God calling Abraham. You're like, who's Abraham? Who's this guy? And it turns out that Abraham is the next living Semite. You know, he's the, he's the son of Shem. And he's in the bloodline of Christ. God finds him on the face of the earth in Ur of the Chaldeans among pagan idolaters. And he says, come Abraham, I've got work for you. This one guy, the whole bloodline of Christ hangs on the thread of this one guy. God tells him, leave your people, leave everything and go to the place I'll show you. Abraham obeys God and the bloodline of Christ carries on. And you say, wow, what a plan. It looked like it was hanging on a thread, but there it worked. You've got Isaac. You remember Isaac was the son of Abraham that Abraham nearly kills on the altar. He's got the knife in his hand. He's about to stab his son. The bloodline of Christ is about to die. And the angel of the Lord says, whoa, hold on. And he's like, what, what? You've got Jacob, whose brother Esau wanted to murder him. And he had to run away from his father's people. How does the bloodline of Christ carry on when the main guy who's carrying on the bloodline of Christ, runs away from his people. I mean, he's afraid to come back for years and years, decades. You've got Judah. Remember Judah, one of the twelve brothers. He decides one day he's going to move away from the other brothers and go live somewhere else. You're like, how can this happen? How can the Christ be born if Judah just goes and lives somewhere else? You know, outside of his, his nation, outside of his tribe. 
And you'll notice in, in Judah's life, one thing that is absolutely stunning about Judah is that Judah is the son of Leah. And you remember when, when Jacob wants to marry Rachel, he works seven years for Rachel, and then the father Laban deceives him by giving him Leah. He wakes up in the morning next to his new wife and he's like, Oh, Rachel, I love you so much. And like, Leah! You know, imagine the horrible shock he got in the morning when he realizes the wrong sister's in his bed. Must have been really dark. But the point is that if that deception had not taken place, the bloodline of Christ would not have occurred, would not have continued, because that deception was necessary in order for Judah to be born through Jacob and Leah, in order for Christ's family line to keep going. I mean, that's fascinating. Then you've got Perez in the family line of Christ, and Perez is Judah's son. And you remember how Judah's son Perez was born? You remember Judah had two sons, and those sons married women, and one of the women's name was Tamar, and the two sons died. So Judah said to Tamar, as soon as my youngest son grows up, I'll give him to you as a husband so that we can carry on the family line. But Judah deceived her and he said, no, 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 I'm not going to give my youngest son to this woman because he's going to die then too. He had this sort of superstition. So what, did, what does Judah do? He goes walking along the road and he finds a prostitute and, and he's like, hey, can I sleep with you? Judah, the bloodline of Christ. Hey, can I sleep with you? And she says, yeah, sure. You know, what will you give me? And he, you know, remember, he gives, he gives her his staff and his cord, you know, like his ID book. And he sleeps with her and then he can't find her again. Later on, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. He says, call her out, let's burn her. And she comes out with his staff and his, you know, his seal, his ID book. I'm, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And like, oh. And like, yeah. That, my, his sins came to find him out. But the son, Perez, who was born to Tamar, by Judah, who thought she was a prostitute, is the bloodline of Christ. He carries on Jesus' bloodline. And you say, isn't the planning of the Father astounding? You know, none of us, if we were writing a mystery novel, none of Sibu likes writing, I mean, you try and write a novel that has all of these complexities in it. It's absolutely astounding. And this is the way the Father planned. And it gives me hope. It gives me hope. If this is the way the Father plans, He's created universe. And I see all my failures. I think, yo, God is truly the God who loves the failure. And then there's Boaz. You remember Boaz. Something interesting about Boaz is his mother was Rahab, remember? Who nearly got destroyed in, in Jericho. I mean, by some chance, and I say that in inverted commas, you know, those soldiers come into, into Jericho. They decide to stay at this prostitute's house. And she hides them. And then she gets them to make a promise that they won't destroy her when they come to conquer the city. And her house stands in a pillar when the whole wall, city walls fall down. And she's Boaz's mom. If she died, if... You know, if there was no agreement, she would have been dead and Boaz wouldn't have been born and the bloodline of Christ wouldn't have continued. You look, wow, detail after detail. And then, of course, Boaz marries Ruth the Moabites. And I've said to you before, if, if Lot's two daughters had not slept with their father Lot, 
and been impregnated by him and given birth to Moab and Ammon, those two sons, the whole nations of Ammon and Moab wouldn't have existed and there would have been no Ruth to marry Boaz and the bloodline of Christ would not have continued. You've got David running through the desert and Saul is trying to kill him with his whole army, 3,000 men running after one guy. And they're just, he's ducking and diving all the time and they just cannot kill David. You've got Solomon, who was born to David from Bathsheba. You know, if David had not committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Bathsheba's husband, you wouldn't have had the bloodline of Christ continuing. Rehoboam, Solomon's son. You remember Rehoboam goes out and he thinks he's going to reign like his father Solomon. But under Rehoboam, the whole nation of Israel is split in two from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and they never reconciled. Eventually the northern kingdom is taken into exile and the southern kingdom uh, just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and eventually they go into exile under the Babylonians. And if Rehoboam had been killed in those horrible clashes that he faced, there would be no bloodline of Jesus. And you've got Hezekiah who's lying on his deathbed, King Hezekiah, but later on. And he's lying there and God says, put your house in order because you're going to die. And Hezekiah, he lies on his, excuse me, he lies on his bed crying to God, God, please, man, please. And he's crying and he's, he's calling out to God. And God sends the prophet back to him and says, oh, it's okay, I'll give you a couple more years. And in those few years, it's as a result of Hezekiah's prayer that God spares his life a little longer. And in those few years, after Hezekiah was supposed to die, he gives birth to a son, his wife, of course. You know, he has a son, and that son's name is Manasseh. And that son Manasseh is in the bloodline of Christ. And Manasseh, the king, was an absolutely godless guy. Nothing like his father. Manasseh grows up absolutely godless. And he's eventually taken to Assyria as a prisoner. They put a hook through his nose and they drag him probably 400 kilometers back, you know, to captivity. And while he's in captivity, he begins to call out on the Lord like his father Hezekiah did. And remarkably, God not only takes him back from captivity and sends him back to Israel, but gives him all of the glory and splendor of his kingdom back. He gets, he gets honored again as king. And after that, Hezekiah's son is born and his son's name is Ammon. And Ammon is such a godless king. He's in the bloodline of Christ, but he's such a godless king that his people couldn't even endure him for two years before they murder him in his own house. But before he's murdered, he has a son. And that son's name is Josiah. And Josiah continues the bloodline of Christ. You know, we, there's so many stories. I'm just, just a little smattering of stories from the bloodline of the Lord Jesus. Imagine the planning of God. In, in the councils of eternity, God saying, alright, this is the way I'm going to do the story. Can you imagine angels that God created? God says, okay, this is what's going to happen in the next chapter. And they're like, yo, we didn't see that coming, man. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, the prophet Hosea marrying a prostitute and she keeps running away and he keeps bringing her back. And you can imagine the angels wondering, why God, why would you write this chapter in the story? And God is saying, well, the story's not over yet. Wait till you read the final chapter and then you're going to see how everything works together and the glory of it all. And I think that works true with your life and my life as well. Here we are in Living Hope Church and we're facing all kinds of different 
positive and negative influences in our lives. Things that are bad, things that are good. And we're saying to God, how does this work out in your plan? How does this change my life? And it's as if God is saying to you, well, just the last chapter hasn't been written yet. I mean, it's been written. You haven't seen it yet. But when you read the final chapter, you're going to be astounded by the plan of God. It's absolutely amazing. Maybe I could just do one little final thing here before we hit some application and, and end off. And that is to speak. So what we've done is we followed the bloodline of Christ, how God intended for this to come about. But now what I want to do is I want to look at how God actually prepared the world. You know, when the bloodline of Christ came to the point where Jesus was to be born, how did God plan the ancient world? So this was the perfect time in the history of the world for Christ to be born. I don't know if any of you have ever wondered, why was it that God didn't cause Christ to be born like now in our world? I mean, so much more technology and transport and, you know, social media. We could have spread the gospel. Jesus is born on, you know, on all of our social media platforms and everyone would have, would have known straight away. But maybe as we consider a couple of these things, we'll realize that when Christ was born was absolutely the perfect time. And just a quick overview of these things. So, when Christ was born, the Romans had brought political stability in that whole region. You're, if you think of the history, uh, we won't talk about all the history of how that all came together. But the Romans were ruling over a vast domain. And inside of that domain was the little land that belonged to Israel. So, Israel was under Roman rule at the time of Jesus' birth. And the Romans had brought um, political stability across this vast area. But you know what, the, what happened there was that through all of, the, all of the Roman outposts, they'd been putting soldiers out from place to place to place. So that when there was political stability, it was because everybody in, um, embraced the same political, I don't know if the word ideology is right here, but they had the same political mindset because it brought peace and it brought prosperity and it brought freedom of movement and it brought um, all kinds of, of blessings for the people. For example, the Romans used to recruit, one of their agendas was if they conquered an area, they would recruit local men from an area to be the Roman soldiers. So what would happen with those Roman soldiers is that you would have, let's say, a Roman soldier from the far east of the Roman kingdom and a Roman soldier from the far west. And as the Romans moved those troops around from place to place in order to post them out for security to maintain this political stability and military stability, these people would take all of their influences all the way from the east to the west. So they were spreading cultures and languages and ideas just the, just the Roman soldiers alone were spreading things and spending a lot of time with each other talking about it. They had a legal system that worked and they had a legal system that supported Christian values. So you could begin to preach the gospel and the government would protect you. I mean, isn't that remarkable? It's becoming unlike that in our world, isn't it? So the second thing, apart from that, that Roman political stability was the first thing. The second thing is that there was a massive religious vacuum at that time. That when the Romans came, you remember before that there was Alexander the Great who came and conquered these massive areas. And then the Romans came and conquered Alexander the Great. And from the Greeks to the Romans, at that time when Jesus was born, everybody was just losing faith in all of their traditional gods. They were like, hey, first we get conquered by the, the Medes and the Persians. So we get conquered by 
uh, Alexander the Great, the Greeks come and, and steamroll us, and then we get conquered by the Romans and our gods are not helping us. So people were calling out, they were saying we need gods, you know, we're, just, we're exhausted with all of our, our worship, and it's not helping us, you know, look at us, we're getting clobbered. So in that religious vacuum, you've got a perfect moment for Jesus Christ to be born. You know, the God-man comes into this world where everyone's religiously exhausted. And then you've got the Greek emphasis on thinking and culture from Alexander the Great. So when Alexander the Great, before the Romans, took over, when he steamrolled them all, he made everybody speak Greek, he made everybody adopt a Greek, Greek customs, you know, Greek culture. So it was a huge big Greek empire, which means as the gospel is presented in Jerusalem, you know, starting on the day of Pentecost, it's going into a Greek world. You're going across cultural line, cultural line, you've got ethnic lines, you've got geographical lines. The gospel is going across all of these national lines, but it's going in the same language and people who understand the same culture. And the gospel just spreads like wildfire in that it's, there's no, no hindrances to the spread of the gospel. And also the Greek thinking, the Greek philosophy, there was... You know, there was an emphasis on thinking clearly about things. Not just some dumb sort of religion, you know, where you've got some God and you don't have the rules clearly written down, but everyone just agrees on the rules. There was clear thinking and there was clear rational thinking about religion in this day. So when Christianity came about, it was clearly examined by all of the philosophers of the day and was found to match up to philosophical standards. And that's remarkable in God's plan. And then you've got the Greek language, as I was saying, across that entire Roman Empire, which contributed to the spread of the gospel. And then you've got the Jewish emphasis, you know, inside of that Roman community, you've got the Jewish emphasis on the one God, you know, as in the Trinity, God is one. And we all agree on that. The Jews wouldn't go to as far as the Trinity, but they all agree on the one God. So we could preach, the Christians could preach the one God. And then the Jews were focusing on the Messiah, you know, and the Christians were focusing on the Messiah, but the Jews didn't acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. But they all agreed that there was a Messiah. The Jews were also emphasizing the Old Testament scriptures, and so were the Christians. And the Jews had synagogues where they would have teaching once a week, and the Christians needed a place where they could teach Christian doctrine once a week. And all of those things worked together the Roman political stability, the religious vacuum, the Greek emphasis on thinking and culture through Alexander the Great, the Greek language all over the place, the Jewish emphasis on one God, the Messiah, the Old Testament scriptures, and the synagogues, all of those things that pulled the whole world together at, at a perfect little moment for Christ to be born and for the gospel to spread like wildfire. And shortly after that, you know, it wasn't long after that in history, that the world was very unlike that. There was trouble, there was war, there was destruction, and the gospel was being, Christians were being persecuted, and the world has never been at a stage like this ever again. God chose the perfect moment, and He engineered that. He put all of those things together for the perfect moment, the perfect day for Christ to be born. And then, this shouldn't be the smallest section, but obviously God plans redemption. How is it? That God takes unrighteous people and places them before a righteous God forever and ever and ever. That all focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ that we will talk about next week. Maybe just a couple of thoughts on application. Remember, 
last week when we looked at the Trinity, we were saying one of the primary applications is we can worship a God like this. Diversity and unity with different functions inside of the Trinity and those relationships inside of the unity in the Trinity. So the first application is that we can worship God. I mean, even if you look at this picture, I mean, it's just an AI picture, but you can look at something of the diversity in that, and you can say, isn't that amazing? God can have the, all of this in His mind at the same time. And everything works. Everything works. Not one single intention of God, not one aspect of God's plan has failed throughout the ages, from beginning of creation until now. God plans a, ti- a vast, time-bound universe... And he plans for its preservation, its concurrence, and its government. And we can see the absolute detail, God, that the attention God has paid to detail in every one of these things. And specifically in application, I can look at my own life and I can say to myself, okay, things might seem like chaos, but they're not chaos. Things are not falling apart. If there's a God who plans, every single detail, every breath I draw, Every place that I go, um, the historical stage upon which God has placed me in this world, the family that God has put me in, the society, the greater society I move among, the church and every member in the church, everything is carefully planned by God for a purpose. And I can say, God, please help me to live according to your purpose. Help me to see your purpose. We can worship God for His creation of a whole universe with a thread of of redemption woven all the way through that glorious creation. I mean, how do you write a story like that where at every point that thread is in threat because it's so slender, but at every point it's never been stronger. It cannot break. Thread of redemption is interwoven through the fabric of God's created order. Christ's bloodline, the spread of the gospel, God's plan to give you the rights, give you right standing with Him forever. We can worship God for that glorious reality. And then thirdly, we can say to ourselves, if God is the God who plans and He executes through the Son everything that He plans, then I've got to say to myself, well, God, God prescribed a certain amount of time and within that time He achieved every single goal that he intended to achieve what am i going to do with the time that god has given me how am i going to plan how am i going to look at my life and say this is my purpose this is where i'm going this is what i i need to do in order to honor god with this time and the resources he's given me and just notice throughout this whole story god has never used spectacular and glorious resources it's always been ordinary time and ordinary resources hasn't it just like you got drinking a cup of water, a donkey, you know, Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem. It's ordinary time, ordinary resources that God has used. So we can never use the excuse, the, the excuse that I don't have uh, one of those things in order to honor God with my life. I do have time and I do have ordinary resources and I can honor God with those things. You have life, you have resources and time that God has designed for you. Maybe as we face the new year, you can sit down and you can think and ask yourself, what's my life all about? What, is, what am I going to leave before I, after I die? What am, how am I going to be remembered? What legacy will you leave? What will you become an expert in, in your life in order to honor God with your, 
ordinary time and your ordinary resources. You know, how are you going to do this, you know, from tomorrow morning? What change will this make in your life? What do you have to read or watch? Or who do you have to speak to in order to say to yourself, all right, this is the way my life is going to change. How will you use everything God has given you to honor Him? Maybe we can just think about practicalities. You know, list, for example, your opportunities. The abilities that you have and the opportunities that lie before you. If, you're gonna, if you want to become a pilot and you're old like me and your eyes are bad, it's not a valid option, is it? There are other things you can do. Do you have opportunities? Ask other people around you what they think you're good at. And say to, you know, say to them, you know, do you think that I would make a good this or that? And help me to you know, think soberly about that. Ask, um, consider how you can grow and get accountability if you need it. Ask somebody to help you keep moving. Set clear and achievable goals that, that can mark your growth. Don't set a massive big goal and then give up in the first week because the, the conclusion to that goal is so far away. Set realistic goals that you can meet on a daily basis. Prepare how you will deal with your future failure because you are going to fail. Obviously, if you're going to become good at something, you're going to fail. How are you going to deal with failure? And keep going. Think about those things. Um, decide on somebody else that you know who's going to help you, who's going to encourage you to keep going to make the most of the life that God has given you. And then you can ask, are there any aspects of your culture or your current life that you need to step away from or change or get rid of in your life if you're going to become the most that you can become for God in the year that lies ahead? So many questions. Think about it. Just stop and say, how am I going to play? So let me just read these couple of paragraphs in conclusion. In conclusion... As we reflect on the awe-inspiring reality of God's existence as a trinity and His meticulous planning in both creation and redemption, we are drawn into a deeper understanding of our purpose and calling. This knowledge is not merely theoretical. It profoundly impacts our daily lives, offering us both comfort and challenge. Firstly, the realization that our lives are part of God's grand design brings immense comfort. We are not adrift in a chaotic universe, but are held in the steady hands of a loving creator who plans, our, plans and preserves. This understanding should fill us with a profound sense of security and, and purpose, even amidst life's uncertainties and struggles. Secondly, this knowledge challenges us to live intentionally, recognizing that we are part of God's intricate plan. We are called to actively participate in His work using our, our unique talents and opportunities for His glory. This involves thoughtful planning and reflection on how our lives align with God's purposes. It means setting goals, seeking growth, and being willing to stand against cultural norms that conflict with God's design. And finally, this understanding of the Trinity and God's sovereign plan should drive us to a life of worship and gratitude. As we ponder the depths of God's wisdom and love, our hearts should overflow with praise. Let us therefore embrace our role in His story, trusting in His plan, living with purpose, and glorifying Him in all we do. Remember, in the grand tapestry of creation and redemption, 
Each thread, including yours, is woven with divine intention and care. Lord, thank you that we have the triune God. Thank you that you are the glorious Father. You are the God who plans. You are the God who planned all of these details before the world began, forever ago. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who is able to execute through the Son and that you are able to apply these things through the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would help us today to to not be people who just drift along in our lives, but that we would look at the astounding reality of the planning of God the Father and say, yes, let me wake up, let me just stop. Let me plan, let me, let me take stock of my life and see where I'm going. Lord, help us not to waste the time that you've given us, to be, but to be intentional. To say, we have a God who is a planning God. And help us to plan well, help us to honor you, Lord. Help us to make the absolute most of the years that you've given us in this world. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do these things. In Jesus' lovely name.